you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, Marnukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king, and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king... Let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memukun proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in. This is God's word. Jesus, thank you so much for the book of Esther and what we have to learn. Thank you for Andrew bringing this word. Please speak to each one of us here. We love you. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Big hand for John. Those names are tough. I did that on purpose just to mess with him, left all the names in there. Life is precarious. The longer you live, the more you realize that that is the reality. Recently, we were on vacation. 
As you can tell, I got a little bit darker, got a little bit of rest. It was much needed. And uh, we had a 13-hour drive in a van, so that was fun. Um, it really was. Um, and on the way there, uh, my wife asked me a question. She said, if you could, uh, like, undo or redo anything in your life, but that today nothing would be different, like we'd still be married, we'd still have the kids that we have, all that, would you do it? And thinking for a moment briefly, but I responded rather quickly, and I said, uh, no, absolutely not, wouldn't change a thing. And uh, I told her that because if I were to change anything, it would change everything. I mean, sure, I might be in the same circumstance I'd be in today, but I wouldn't be the same person in the same circumstance I am today without these particular moments in my life. I think about how every single moment in my story has shaped the person that I am today. And for a moment, I want you to consider your story and how you got here today. If someone was going to make a movie of your life, what would be the moments they would choose to tell that story? As you consider your story, you think about moments in time, these transcendent moments that have marked your life in some particular way. Maybe for you it was the day you got married, or the day you started your career, or the day your children were born. Maybe for you it's not as traditional as those moments. Maybe it's the first time you swung a baseball bat or a vacation you took with your family. Maybe the moment that comes to your mind is not a positive one but a negative one, one that is marked by pain. You think of a really difficult breakup, losing a loved one, a really tough conversation. Whatever the moments, good or bad, general or specific, each of these moments has led you to the person that you are today. And there were thousands upon thousands of decisions that led to each of those moments. And as we begin to think about how complex and wonderful life is, it begs the question, where is God in all of this? As you think about these moments for you, maybe his presence was evident. Maybe he felt absent. This question fits within a larger framework of this, how does God work in the world? And today, this morning, we are embarking on a journey to answer this question through the story of Esther. You see, the story of Esther functions as an invitation to see how God moves in the world. We could have one sermon where we discuss this topic or idea, but that is not how we learn best. We learn best through stories. Commentator Joyce Baldwin says this, Biblical narrative represents a dynamic mode of thinking whose aesthetic properties support and enhance the process of arriving at knowledge. In other words... Stories make it easier for listening, or make it easier for learning, rather. So what we, are, what we are endeavoring to do from the biblical authors is learn about God's heart and his character through story, and particularly through this story here and Esther. And so before we dive into the story, I think it's important that we lay some important groundwork uh, for uh, the passage that we're going to be in today. First, Esther is a diaspora story. Can you say diaspora? All right, 50% of you said it. The other 50% were like, nah, not even going to try. This story takes place 100 years after the Babylonian exile. After Babylon comes in and overthrows the Jewish people, this is taking place 100 years after that moment. Some Jews have returned to Jerusalem. Um, you can follow their narratives in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But many still lived scattered among the nations, namely the nation of Persia. 
Uh, this idea that the Jewish people are dispersed is where we get the idea of diaspora. And so this story is written in that time of the diaspora, of this time of being dispersed, of this time of living in exile. Now, one of the more interesting things about the book of Esther is outside looking in, this seems to be a quote-unquote secular story. What I mean by that is it's really curious, is in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned not even once. Not the temple, not Jerusalem, not God, not worshiping him, nothing. He is nowhere in the book of Esther. And this may seem like a really weird story to put in the Bible, right? If you were the ones who were trying to get, gather a collection of books, probably Esther wouldn't be the one you put in there because like, he's not even mentioned one time. Why would it be in here? But the way that Esther functions is three things. One, it captures the story of the human experience. Two, it functions as an invitation. And three, it displays that God uses sometimes questionable characters. First, it captures the human experience. When we read the scriptures, most often the biblical authors are intentional about highlighting and explaining things as they happen so that we know it is God. But here in Esther, that's not clear. When something happens in the story, it isn't abundantly clear how it happened or why it happened until much later in the story. It is simply framed as a coincidence with all sorts of curiosity behind it. Right? The most famous line from the book of Esther that many of you might know is in Esther chapter 4. Right? It reads this, and who knows, but you have come to your royal position for what? Such a time as this. Now, what Christians love to do is take this and make it a promise. Right? That, like, Esther is contemplating saving the people, and Mordecai comes in with these encouraging words. You were born for this moment. And she's like, I will go to the king. But really, it's more like, who knows? Maybe this is why you're here. All right, talk to you later, you know, and that's more of the disposition. It wasn't this strong exhortation to courage. It was kind of like, this is crazy. Maybe this is why you're here. You want tacos? You know, and just move on from that moment. She was fasting. She wouldn't have had tacos. That would have been rude. But we often interpret that this verse is stated as a matter of fact, but really, it's just a question. And is this not the human experience? So often, I think followers of Jesus love to speak with certainty. God did that. God opened that door. God did this. And I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad. But it puts all sorts of pressure on knowing every single moment is from God or not. And it, and it, and it provides for people this kind of fear or worry of how do I know what's God and what's not God, especially in the areas where life is super precarious. I mean, there's things that are overtly clear that are God and not God, right? Things that are good and honoring and please him. But what if you're choosing between two really good things? Right? What if you've been given an opportunity to choose between two different jobs, both with excellent pay, both would provide really good things for your family, right? How do you know which one is from God? You feel all this pressure to be like, how do I know which one is from him, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what Esther does, it gives language to what the human experience is like. It's not like you woke up that morning and the Cheerios spelt out the first job, Right? It's this prayer and conversation, and I don't know, maybe, and this one's a little closer, and I like that office better, or whatever it is, and you weigh through all of these different things. This is what the human experience feels like. And it's not until much later in your life that you realize God's hand in the, in the seasons before. And I know you've known this to be true. As you've thought about moments and stories and times, at the time, it was not clear that it was God doing that, right? Let's say you went through a really horrible breakup. The night that you're weeping in your room, listening to Phil Collins and eating a tub of ice cream, you're not like, this is from the Lord, right? It's not till two and a half years later that you realized, 
dodge that bullet, right? That you realize that God was working in that moment, in the mist there. And that's often how life works. It's very precarious, and we see God's hand much later only then looking back than in the middle of it all. Secondly, this story functions as an invitation. The author was explicit to not put God in the story because what he wants you to do is find God in the story for yourself. What he wants you to do is read through the story and be looking for his fingerprints all over it. These moments that are coincidental or these massive reversals, the author wants you to see that it's God behind the scenes doing these things. Even though it's not overtly expressed or said, the author wants to invite you to begin to notice where his hand is working. And so we will develop this idea as we go further along, but the big idea is this. The way that God most often works in the world is not through supernatural intervention, but through subtle influence. And we'll develop this idea further as we go along. But it's this. Does God supernaturally intervene? Yeah, for sure. The scriptures are filled with stories like that. Does it happen every single day? Most often, no, for most believers' experience, right? I don't know if, like, the traffic sea parted for you last Tuesday, but I still got stuck in traffic, right? Or, or whatever it is. And so I feel like for a lot of believers, when they're faced with moments where they need wisdom, they're waiting for Red Sea moments. But God is often speaking in the gentle whisper of Elijah on Mount Horeb moments, you know? We're waiting, for the, we're waiting for the sign, right? On the road, show me something, a license plate, an exit, something to show me what to do. And God is actually coming to you, speaking to you through subtle influence, prophetic words, prayer requests, etc. But we'll develop that idea as we go further along. Thirdly, this story uses questionable characters. One of the things Christians love to do is like make the biblical author, make the biblical characters heroes. Like ignore their shadow sides, they're heroes, right? Now, what's really clear in the book of Esther is that even the protagonists are kind of shady characters. Even the protagonists have chinks in their armor. They have things that are about them that... uh, They do things that don't necessarily honor God. And so there's this moral ambiguity about the characters in the story. To be clear, the silence on their actions does not mean it's an endorsement from God. But rather, despite the characters' flaws, we see that God is willing to still use the characters to bring about his purposes. So what we don't want to do is be like, well, Esther did it. That means I could do it, right? That's some of our framework around the scriptures. It's like, no, God used Esther despite those things, but God has a much different call for us here today. So that's kind of the important framework to set up there. Let's begin jumping the text. Verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So the story opens up on the Persian Empire. Um, The the, the backdrop of the story is taking place that after Babylon rises and falls and the Medo-Persian Empire takes over, this is kind of the midst of the moment that we are living in. Now, they're under the rule of a guy named Xerxes, who as we go through the story, you're going to really dislike him. Um, He is a caricature of like a real person. He is this overly animated, overly emotionally fragile, overly insecure, drunk drama queen, okay, Uh, for lack of a better phrase. And uh, as we go along, you're going to see more and more of his character. But we open up on this guy, 
and to speak a little bit about the kind of person he is, he's throwing a lavish party for his leaders. So what the author of Esther is trying to do is place the story within a context where the Jewish people are under the rule of the Persian government. A huge part of the story of the people of God is them learning how to live under the rule and reign of unjust and ungodly leadership. Much of the Jewish story is learning how to be a minority. Now I realize for us here in the West, we may feel like we are a minority, but we're not a minority in the truest sense of the word, right? There was no ver voting for King Xerxes, right? There was no like democratic thing and an election and all that stuff and your voice matters. It was like, no, he was the king, he did what he wanted, suck it up, right? And that's been most of history. Democracy is a relatively new thing if we're looking at the total human history of things, right? And so for us, it's hard to transpose our mind in that. And even being here, there's a lot of conversations I have with believers that are like rooted in fear and worry. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? The president's not a Christian. And it's like, look at all of human history for Christians, right? Je Jesus didn't come and wasn't preaching. And it's like, hey guys, the most important thing, Nero must be a Christian, right? Jesus was not concerned at all with political parties because he was building an entirely different kingdom in and of itself. And so we must learn how to take on this posture of being an exile, which is called the exile ethic. We see this posture emerge from the biblical authors has become known as the exile ethic. So first, we must realize that our allegiance belongs to God and God alone, right? Our leaders get our respect and our prayers, and it is our responsibility to seek the good of the places that we live, right? Historically speaking, there's really been a spectrum here about how followers of Jesus have responded to ungodly power regimes and how the biblical authors call us to live. So first, posture of response is that of withdrawal. These are those individuals who are saying, like, the world's corrupt, it's going to hell in a handbasket, let's just start our own commune, our own Christian bubble, and get away from everything, right? Think of, like, the desert mothers and fathers, monks, things of that nature, who kind of seclude themselves from the world entirely as a kind of prophetic resistance, right? Now, this sounds super admirable, but in doing so, they preserve holiness but forsake mission, right? That that people would only be willing to participate in things as long as they are Christians, as long as it's Christian in nature, which is a really weird thing because how can, how can anything be Christian other than an individual be one who follows Christ? Anyways, we're rambling. But Christians do this thing where we get into our own Christian bubble as a way of, like, secluding from the world. Like, I only listen to Christian music. I only watch Christian movies. I only go to a Christian barber. I only drink Christian coffee. Like, whatever that all would mean, right? It's only buy Christian shoes with a little cross in the back to let people know Jesus, right? Or whatever it is. Um, and we get into these, like, little bubbles where we just want to surround ourselves with people who are like us. And that sounds admirable, and it sounds good. And look, if you watch Christian movies or listen to Christian music, like, praise God, do that stuff. If you've got the cross on your shoe, I'm not hating. But what I am saying is that we cannot surround ourselves with just an environment that we're comfortable with because then we forsake mission. Sure, we preserve holiness, but we forsake the very people that God has called us to. Jesus did not say, I send you into the world to run from it, build your own communes, have your own commerce, and stay away from everybody. He says to preach the gospel to the whole world, right, to seek and to save the lost. The opposite of this is compromise, right? So these are people who are like imbibed in culture. Like they're with the lost people. They're doing it, but they've forsaken holiness. 
right? Yeah, for the sake of mission, they've compromised all of their values and their ethics and therefore have lost any sort of potency because they've been completely um, integrated into the world systems and the way that the world is. And so what started off as good intentions slowly over time has become corrupted and pooled by the cultural tide. Now, if I were to map our church on the spectrum, I'm not super worried about withdrawal, right? I'm not super worried about a lot of people going that way. What I am more concerned with is those who are compromised, those who have allowed the cultural tide and the cultural values to influence them and imprint them on, on them in such a way that their allegiance is more towards those cultural values than towards the teachings of Jesus. That when, when we're confronted with the teachings of Jesus, we still prefer the idols of our culture. And so how do we live then? What's the, what's the response? I would argue it's this, faithful influence. The exile ethic teaches us the way of faithful influence, meaning we are present and available in culture to love, serve, and bless, but we never compromise in the way of Jesus. In the language of the biblical authors, we are in the world but not of it, meaning we have presence, but we, not have, we have not been come, become contaminated by it. The big idea here is this, uh, being a creative minority. If you guys were here a couple years back, uh, I did a series called uh, Exiles and Empires through the book of Daniel, and we talked about this idea, but I want to explore it here for a moment. This has all sorts of implications for us as followers of Jesus today, this faithful influence idea. And this idea has become known as being a creative minority. Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong leaks with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. So we must realize that the posture of followers of Jesus are not to grasp for political power or destroy and overthrow existing leadership, but is instead the goal is to influence the place that we live and the people we live with to see the beauty and goodness of God's kingdom and share the wonderful news of Jesus. That no matter who is in charge, we pray for them, we use every resource and opportunity to bring about goodness and righteousness and tell the story of Jesus because our allegiance is to him. So the Jeremiah framework was this, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, right, but do not become compromised by that. To put this in very simple terms for us is to seek the peace and prosperity of Los Lunas, Valencia County, and America as a whole. We want this place to flourish, but our allegiance is not to the systems and governments. Our allegiance is to Jesus and him alone. So it goes on, verse 4. For a full 180 days... He, being Xerxes, displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from each other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. But the king's commands, each, by the king's command, each guest was, drink, was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to, give, to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. A lot there. Here's what you need to know. This is a massive party. Um, and the king is setting new records for amounts of parties, right? 
a good party for you lasts, what, a couple hours? Everyone goes home to bed by 9 o'clock or something, right? That's a good Sunday party, okay? The Jewish people, when they would do weddings, they'd be a week long. So think about that, right? You go to a wedding, seven days worth of hanging out with these people. The king doubles down big time and says, we're not going to do seven days. We're going to do 180. That is a wicked long party, right? He does 180. And it's supposed to be like stupid long, right? It's because it's, what the king is trying to do is display his power and his riches and whatever. And so you know how the king decides to end this party? With another party. He's like, after the 180 days of celebrating is over, we're going to celebrate the celebration with a seven-day celebration, right? This is just doubling down. It shows you a little bit about Xerxes' character and what it's like to be around this guy, right? And so he throws this lavish celebration to culminate um, his, his, his conquering kingdom, all the things that he is doing, etc. Now, politics looked different back then than they do today, but not much different, because these, par- these parties served a political purpose. So one, they're to instill confidence and support towards the king. Granted, this is a dictatorship. It's not like the king is, you know, uh, going up for election next year and he's trying to curry favor. But what he is trying to curry is confidence and a sense of fear about his power, his authority, and what he can do. So one, I mean, if you've ever been invited to a party... You're like, oh, cool, free food, whatever. Now imagine 187 days worth of parties. The king is trying to curry favor. Um, Not, again, because he's going to be elected, but it's a lot easier to lead people who like you and who are afraid of you, right, than people who would want to cause an insurrection. And secondly, he's trying to display his wealth. He's trying to, like, puff out the chest. Notice the descriptions of the thing. It's like he has gold cups, but not just gold cups. None of the gold cups are the same, right? He's got these bougie linens hanging from everywhere, right? And it's an open bar all week long just to say run the tab, swipe the card, whatever, we're having a party kind of a thing. And so the king is trying to display his wealth. A couple commentators on this, Karen Job says this, Xerxes displayed his wealth to show that he would make good on his promise, his promise being the conquering of the world, and renewed those who would reward those who would rally to support his campaign. Adele Berlin says this, Persian banquets are more than just fancy dinner parties. By virtue of their large guest lists, menus, and furnishings, they represent the diversity of the empire, its wealth, and hear this, and the king's control over it. So this is all a King Xerxes is the man party, come and hang out. And so this is the backdrop of the story that's about to unfold. But this brings us to a larger conversation about power and how we use it. But we find ourselves in a time where distrust and disillusionment with authority figures is at an all-time high, right? Positions of power, all that stuff. We're very weary of those kind of individuals. And if we're honest, a lot of this is for good reason, right? It would be unimaginable 15 years ago to think about bumper stickers, business marquees, flags, and celebrities on talk shows publicly cursing and maligning historically respectable positions, such as the presidency or the Supreme Court. This is relatively new that there's been this kind of contempt before, right? It's always been popular to disagree with politicians and political leaders. That's happened since the dawn of politics. What is new is the kind of disdain and contempt by which we treat the people in positions of power. This is kind of a new thing. And so 
I say all that to say we've experienced a massive cultural shift in our distrust of authority figures and positions of power. And so what is clear is that many are disillusioned by continually being let down by those who wield power recklessly. And if we just look at recent history, Watergate, Snowden leaks, Catholic church scandals, celebrity pastor moral failures, the list goes on and on about authority figures who are given power who wield it recklessly. Now, what happens is that we are experiencing what happens when humans give themselves over to the way of the serpent, give themselves over to the way of power structures of the world. Now, we have been created to rule. In Genesis, we are given authority and power to rule and dominion over the earth, to establish structures and governments and environments where humans can flourish. But we see quickly in the Genesis narrative that Adam and Eve chose not to rule according to God's wisdom, but their own that they decide for themselves to choose and define good and evil on their own terms, and with that decision comes the wreckage of sin. And so human beings, as human beings, each of us has been given power. The question is, what do we do with it? Now, each of us has different measures of power, different measures of influence, but the question remains the same. How do we wield the power that we have been given? Think of a small example. Think of those of you who are parents. When your child is young, you have a lot of power and influence over the decisions that they make, the thing that they do. And parenting, when they're really, really young, is easy. You can just give them the look, you know, and they'll let go of something or do something like that, right? As they progress, they obtain a will of their own. And you realize the power that you thought you had over them is quickly slipping away. And so there's two ideas here, this idea of hard power and soft power. Hard power is like by force and threat. If you do that you're going to get spanked, right? Something like that. That's hard power. Soft power is through influence. It's through subtly inviting them into a different way of thinking. When the kids are super little, hard power is easy. Try telling a 17-year-old, if you continue your behaviors, you're going to get spanked. It's like, all right, you know, whatever you say, mom, and they're walking out the door, you know? And so as we realize that individuals with will and influence, that hard power only goes a certain, a certain way. Xerxes leads through hard power, and we're going to see how that kind of corrupts and undermines his kingdom. Um, but soft power is a way of leading through influence and inviting people into things. And as human beings, each of us has been given power and authority. And how we wield that power really matters. And the key to wielding power is wisdom. According to the biblical authors, the key to stewarding power well is wisdom. It was Adam and Eve's rejection of God's wisdom that caused, that caused them to use their power for evil. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. Michelle preached the house down a couple weeks ago when I was gone, and she talked about Solomon and him coming into his kingdom, that the thing that he asked for was wisdom. And this made Solomon a great ruler, is that he sought God's wisdom and he ruled by it. Later in life, he forsook that wisdom, but nonetheless, you get the idea. Now, for us to live well, we must learn how to steward power well, as it pertains to wisdom. Story goes on. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Memuhman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. If you're looking to name kids, I would highly recommend Carcass and Bigtha. Those are really strong, solid names, biblical. Um, so if you wanted to keep with the whole Christian vibe, Big Thun Carcass are the ones I, I recommend your way. Man, their parents must have not liked them very much. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. 
for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. So we're at the massive party. It's the last day of the massive party. The king is drunk with all his buddies, and they're playing pool, doing car, playing cards, whatever. They're having a party. Now, what happened was customary at this time is like the men would have one party and the women would have another party, particularly when the drinking started to happen. That's when it would kind of like bifurcate and they'd go into their, little, their own separate quarters. Now, uh, the scripture says that he was high spirits from wine, which is just a biblical way of saying super drunk is what the king is right here. Now, as the story unfolds, on the last day of the party, the king is drunk. The authors note that he is under the influence to specifically point out that the events that take place are because he's drunk, that these things wouldn't happen necessarily if he was sober. But the fact that he's drunk is why he makes these decisions. Now, what the biblical authors aren't trying to, like, highlight here is a conversation about alcohol. They're trying to point to the decisions that he was made. But I do feel a pastoral responsibility to kind of speak into something for a moment. We think that the scriptures are pretty clear that as long as it doesn't violate the conscience and leads towards drunkenness, that the door is open for believers to partake in alcohol, right? As long as it doesn't lead towards drunkenness, it doesn't violate the conscience. Now, in a lot of Christian communities, there's like a legalism around that, that like abstinence from alcohol is mandatory and it's the only way to be a follower of Jesus. The only problem with that is Jesus in the New Testament, who they drink alcohol. Now, um, and it's as a matter of conscience that violates your conscience, please don't do it. If it leads to drunkenness, please don't do it. And the Bible's clear about it leading towards drunkenness and how that is sinful in nature. Now, in our community, I'm not super worried about legalists walking around sniffing what's in everybody's drink. What I'm more concerned about is the influence that we allow alcohol to have over our decisions and how for much of our community, I think we lean on the opposite end of things. I think we may be too lenient with the freedoms that we take. I feel like right now in our community, there are many who are lacking wisdom in this area. And for you, this is a hindrance in your walk with Jesus, your relationship with alcohol. That this area of liberty has become a source of bondage for you. That there may be even decisions you've made recently that you wouldn't have made sober that is causing great pain and regret in your life. And my pastoral word for you is this. Maybe it's time to abstain. Maybe not forever, but maybe it's time to pray and begin to ask the question what your relationship with this freedom will look like in the future and to do the hard work of that kind of discipleship framework. Now, what the heck is the king asking Vashti to do here? There's a bunch of different thoughts. First um, is that he was treating Vashti like the rest of his kingdom, simply a piece of his property, like, come here, girlfriend, you know, and she's like, "Mm -mm," whatever, right? That's one framework of thinking. The next is that because the parties were separate genders, the women, the only women invited to the men's party after the drinks came out were prostitutes. So she's thinking, I'm one of these floosy ladies, you're not going to call me to the room over there. Second option. Third option is notice how the king specifically requests for her to be wearing her royal crown. Some Hebrew scholars believe that there's like a connotation there that he's saying, only wearing your royal crown, and it's like, hey, come display your beauty. You can read between the lines there. Either way, I think all of those are sound interpretations. I think the last one is probably the most likely, but she refuses for obvious reasons, right? I don't think that it's an unreasonable request that she turns down, right? I don't think anyone, she's like, what's wrong with Vashti? And it's like, no, we could all see that that's an unreasonable request and one that the king wouldn't have made had he been sober, right? He's in the thing of flaunting and showing, oh, you think this is good? Call in Vashti, right? Kind of a thing. And so 
Either way, she refuses. Adele Berlin on this. She says this. Just as the king displayed his wealth, so he wishes to display his queen, who is a part of his wealth. And just as the royal wine was not reserved exclusively for the king, so the king's wife is not kept for his eyes alone. And so we see this kind of drunken stupor of a mess that he makes. Now, for the last 187 days, the king has been boasting about his power and his prominence, and whatever he desires to come to pass comes to pass, except in his own home. Right, he makes this request, he does, and she turns him down. And so we'll see in a moment that with this drunken request will serve as a catalyst that swings the whole story into motion. And what Vashti does in turning him down causes the king to burn with anger. He feels disrespected, and the drama begins to unfold. Verse 13, since it was customary for the king to exalt experts in the matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan. The seven nobles of the prince and media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what, had been, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all nobles and peoples of the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women. And so they will all despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. So you can see... They're a little dramatic here, right, to say the least. So uh, the king gathers his council, and so the king is deeply insecure, and we're going to see this as time goes on. So he huddles up the boys like, what should we do? What should be done? And so all these knuckleheads start throwing around ideas. And one of them, Memucan, he's a character, is like, everyone's going to know what she did. Everyone's going to know she's going to turn you down. Then all these households are going to be in disarray, and all the kingdom will come, and the women will rise up, and they'll fight, and they'll kill, and they'll take over the kingdom, right? He's like playing all these things up, playing into King Xerxes' fear. Now, what we see throughout the story is that the king is insanely dangerous. Not because he's overtly cruel, but because he's thoughtless and insecure. Michael Fox says this, Xerxes is not particularly cruel, but he is nonetheless terrifying. Such power with so little thought invested in its employment. His decision is not driven by hatred, but by indolence and reinforced by egotism and cupidity. The combination of petty impulses and mental sloth, which is a nice way of saying stupidity, I love that, um, is what Hannah Adrent, who is a historian on Nazi Germany, says, the, called the banality of evil, the strange interdependence of thoughtlessness and evil. Wickedness may be caused by absence of thought. And so we see that Xerxes' greatest flaw is that he doesn't think. He's just responsive. He just re reactionary. He doesn't think about things. He didn't think for a moment like, hey, was that a good thing to ask my wife to do? No. He's like, I can't believe she said no. Can you believe this guy's right? There's no thought process happening in here. There's a tumbleweed rolling in the desert going on up here in his mind. And so we see that these type of leaders are particularly dangerous. This intersection between thoughtlessness and evil. And so if there's an antithesis to wisdom, it's Xerxes. If there's somebody who is the opposite of wisdom, it's Xerxes and how he operates. Now, we see here that this council, namely Memucan, 
gives terrible advice born out of insecurity and damaged ego. Like that literally makes no sense what he's saying and the kind of fear he's trying to perpetuate. The king has surrounded himself with those who stroke his ego, with those who tell him what he wants to hear, right? Nobody's like, hey, dude, that was really dumb. You shouldn't have just asked for that. Like, we just, you had too much to drink, man. <laughs> Let's calm down. No, they're like, oh, yeah, dude, can you believe her? That's crazy. They're like stroking his ego. And so the reality, this is really interesting relationship, this is really interesting relationship rather between pride and insecurity. It's often those who are most proud that who are really deep down the most insecure. And we see that the king clearly has a fragile ego that was deeply offended by the reasonable response from his queen. And a huge part of wisdom, and hear hear me in this, is surrounding yourself with the right people. There are those who are in a community right now who have been making terrible decisions based on the advice of the people that you've surrounded yourself with. It is not godly wisdom. It is not wisdom that is honored to him. It's not even, it's not even accurate worldly wisdom, right? It's just straight foolishness, and you've heeded this counsel, and you've made a mess of your life. I see this all the time with people who are in crisis. One of the first things we have in a conversation that's pastoral, what are the people around you saying? A marriage is on the rocks. If the advice that you're getting is, oh, leave him, dump him, you deserve better, da-da-da, whatever, without actually care and concern for the covenant of marriage, what's happening in the context of the relationship, love and care and, 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 and healing for both parties, then you know you're getting foolish wisdom. And so the king surrounded himself by a bunch of knuckleheads. So what's going to happen of his life? He's going to make a mess of it. So this is a word of caution for us. Be careful whose counsel you heed because it will determine your future. Be careful what counsel you heed, because it will determine your future. Now, story goes on. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all, the va- all of his vast realm, and all the women who... Wait, yeah, yep, sorry, I got lost there. Uh, and better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his normals were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan impo- proposed. He sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and each person in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. So what happens here? Vashti is banished from the king's presence. Now, most Bible scholars believe that that's not just like she lost her job and is now living in the Bahamas or something. It means that she was most likely murdered. She was most likely executed for the decision that she made. It's the only way to ensure the king would never have her in her presence again. Secondly, the search for a new queen begins, which kind of issues in the whole story of Esther. Third, a new law is written, and here's the law. Every man should be ruler over his own household. That's the new law that's proclaimed. It's written out. The way that the law of the Medes and uh, the Persians, uh, the Medes and the Persians were, is that once it was written into law, it could not be like repealed or uh, appealed back. There was concrete, set in stone. That's what the law is now. And we'll see that this serves as kind of a precursor to the laws that will come later on in the story of Esther. And lastly, the edict is announced. It's going around a whole nation. This is what's going on. So pastoral word on this. I realize that this story generates a response in a lot of us, right? For some um, women in our congregation, they've felt what it's like to be at the hand 
of foolish men in power. And when dumb men make dumb decisions, it really has affected you. And so I want to acknowledge that. And there's a little bit like where I'm with you, sis, you know, like I agree with you. And then for us guys, Xerxes not the best of us. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like who gave him the obligation to represent the male gender? Granted, we're not the best, but we're better <laughs> than that guy, right? And so I realized that there's like a great tension that is happening between the genders in our cultural moment. And what the enemy seeks to do is breed insecurity and fear in men to continue to grasp for power and create within women bitterness and resentment towards men so that there'd be a hostility between the genders. God's vision is that both genders would rule together harmoniously. It was both men and women who were given the creation responsibility to rule and to steward. It was the early church that was led by both men and women, fueled by both men and women. So to be very clear, here at Zion, we want to celebrate and honor the gifts and works that God is doing through the incredible women in our church. And one of the things that we're actively working against is the whole boys club mentality. We want to raise up and build up women leaders and preachers and teachers who can come and facilitate and lead our congregation uh, because their voices matter and they bring a lot to the table. I know in many church structures, women are not given a seat at the table where decisions are made and it gravely affects them. And we see the kind of decisions that are made when it's a boys club only kind of a thing. Example A, right? And then all the women are going to do this. And all it's like foolishness. The genders bring the best out of one another. You get three dudes in a room talking about something, right? They're going to be talking about Star Wars, beer, the nap they took, whatever. It's like the bar is this high, gents. You know what I mean? It's like we'll just talk about whatever. The steak we ate two days ago, whatever. The bar is this low, you know? And, but when a woman walks into the room, the whole dynamic shifts. Suddenly, it's not, we're not burping and farting and being these animal beasts, right? We're like, we pick ourselves up a little bit, try to sound a little more sophisticated, speak more than three-word sentences, I am hunger, or something, you know? So when, women step, when a woman steps in the room, it elevates the men in the room, right? And I know that we can say the same thing on the opposite side of things, that there's a certain, I don't know about the women culture, it's a, mysteri- it's a mystery what happens beyond closed doors, I'm not sure. There's councils, there's things that happen, there's decisions, there's voting, I know it, I've seen a gavel come out of there one time, but something happens when women are all together too, right? But that when a man is present in that room, right, it changes the whole environment. And we see that the genders work great together, harmoniously together. They call out and bring out the best of one another. And I think that God has called us together as a family to be both represented, both male and female. And so we see here that this is just like the toxic, patriarchal, like, nonsense here. And anybody who, like, there are people who have taken this passage and see, like, see, Vashti should have listened. And it's like, dude, repent hard because that's nonsense um and then there's like the other end of thing that's like they paint Vashti as like this feminist queen and it's like dude she was like oppressing all kinds of women she was not like for women she was sending the concubines into the king's place right so she's not this picture of of biblical femininity right none of these stories have that kind of moral clarity but we can't do either what we have to do is obtain a biblical vision for what both genders look like Coming up in the fall, we're going to have a whole series about sexuality and gender where we'll tease this out more. But all this to say, when it comes to power, this is why it's really important that men and women make decisions together and heed one another's voices. Now, lastly, we're landing this plane. Life is precarious. Vashti did not wake up that morning thinking that she was going to be banished, possibly executed. 
for return for refusing to for turning down her husband's inappropriate request. There was no way when she was brushing her teeth that she was like, "This is what my day's gonna be." No idea. Life is precarious in that nature, that it's not clear that what happens, how these things and different things unfold, etc. But because life is precarious, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate through it. This story is a story of what happens when insecurity and power run amok. This is a dangerous kingdom to be living under the regime of. And here's the honest truth. A lot of places and halls of power look very similar to this. It's about ego, it's about power, it's about money, it's about influence, it's not about helping other people. And this begs the question, how do we live in a moment like this? And the big idea here is, we need wisdom. And more importantly, it's easy to point and say, look at how they're abusing their power, but the better question to ask is, how am I using mine? We can't do anything about those who are in office other than vote and do whatever, and this is not that conversation. I'm not getting political in that regard. But what I am saying is we, as followers of Jesus, should be modeling power the best. And lately, we've been doing a terrible job at that. We've been doing a terrible job at learning how to model power well. And so how does this all start? With you as an individual, in your place of work, in your family, in your relationships, all these places you've been given power and influence to steward it well and to steward it with wisdom. We are at a crucial moment right now. One day, when I'm old and gray, my kids are going to ask me, what were the 2020s like? And what were you doing in them? Because there's going to be history books written about the moment we're living in right now. What I don't want to tell my kids is, watched a lot of Netflix, posted some fire memes, had some DoorDash, right? I want to tell them that I leveraged every amount of responsibility, influence, and opportunity that I had to bring goodness into the world. What will you say when someone asks you what you did during the 2020s? What will your answer be? What will your responsibility be for this moment? Now, we're going to enter into a time of response. And as we do, I just feel like the Spirit's urging us into three directions. One is to shift our focus on Jesus. For a lot of people, you find yourself consumed and exhausted because of political power right now. You click on the news, it's this way, it's that way, it's whatever. And you've found yourself continually looking for men to be the answer to bring peace and hope and restoration to the world. When Jesus was on earth, he never said that my responsibility is to become ruler over in Rome. Jesus was building an entirely different kingdom altogether. Now, as followers of Jesus, we have responsibility, right, to use the powers that we've been given to bring in good. Yes and amen. But too many of us are cashing in all the chips on who's in office, who gets voted in, how all that works, who's in power. But I have good, for you, good news for you this morning, brothers and sisters, and it's this. Jesus is Lord. He is above all principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. And we, we serve and seek his kingdom alone. And so I feel like there's just a word for you that some of you, you've been drowning 
and worrying about that stuff and you have not turned your eyes to Jesus because the hope of the nation, the hope of the future, the hope of generations coming does not sit within a white office or a white house office, does not sit within the halls of power. He is seated on the right hand of the Father. And it's to him that we need to shift our eyes to. So maybe that's you this morning. Your heart has been weighed down heavy and it's time to turn your eyes to Jesus. Secondly, I feel a strong call that there are those of us who are being confronted with the power that we've been given and we desire to steward it well. And the invitation from the Spirit this morning is to begin to steward power well, to grieve, to mourn, to call out the places of power that abuse and exploit people and to use the power that we've been given, the voice that we've been given, to call up, to encourage, and to speak life and provide opportunity for those who would not have it. And lastly, it's just for wisdom. I have a strong sense that there's some people here who lately you feel like your life has been in a hurricane. You don't know which way's up. You don't know which way's down. There's so many things going on. You feel like you have so many decisions to make. There's pressure. There's stress, and it feels insurmountable. And you've been trying to figure it out on your own. You've been doing your pros and cons list. You've been writing Excel spreadsheets. You've been trying to work this thing out of your mind, and your wheels are spinning And the invitation from the Spirit this morning is to come and receive wisdom. James says, we have not because we ask not. And that if we ask God who is generous, he will give us the wisdom that we need. And right now, this is you. You need wisdom. There's a a situation at work. There's a situation going on in your family. There's something happening in the world world where right now you need wisdom. You need wisdom from another. You need divine revelation to know how to go about the situation. If any of these things are you, or God's doing something else, the Spirit's speaking something else, and you just want prayer, we're going to have a team up here who just wants to pray with you, pray over you, and ask that God would give you the wisdom that you long for. Brothers and sisters, let us stand and let us worship. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.